Time to get do. Thanks. Uh, Thanks. Motherfuck Jeff Bezos and all his pesos. Rock the black mass like space ghost. My people scapegoat. You can't escape most. Hate foes. I wanna break yours. That's why I hope the borders stay closed. Focus on how my day to day goes. This rap game amaze, bro. That's why I'm amazed. We made it this far without a break, Joe. My father used to rock the Seiko. My mama balled like J. Cole. Over countries that were bombed like Waco. Baby, stay close. Damn, everything I say, Cole. Live the dream, but stay woke. This is freedom you can't pay for With your broke ass I know that everybody wanna be on top But to be on top You might go to hell You might have to sell your soul I just want the money I just want the money I just want all the money right now I don't need the money I guess I don't need the money One, two, enter the algorithm Digital euthanasia. I learned this system can't be trusted. It abused our nature. First off, we must acknowledge the rules of the maker. First, broken, I see the simulation. Illuminati illumination. I ruin the party for all your patrons, man. Damn, everything I say, cold. Live the dream, but stay woke. This is freedom you can't pay for. With you, broke ass. This part of history will be Hello. Welcome to Dosed, everyone. It is a Tuesday, January 10th, 2.17 p.m. here on the West Coast. You're listening to Narsi, where you were. No, no, another song came on after. That was not Narsi. If you were listening to Narsi, our guest today, that was a song called Jeff Bezos. Abby, how you doing today? Doing good, Mike. I'm super excited for the show today. Welcome to Dosed, everyone. This is Abby Martin. You were just listening to Jeff Bezos, a track off Narcy's 2021 album called Meme Against the World. Uh, Yasin Al-Salman, better known for his stage name Narcy, formerly a narcissist, is an Iraqi-Canadian rapper with a prolific discography. He's also an author... Most recently, the author of the book Text Messages, or How I Found Myself Time Traveling. And he's also a professor at Concordia University in Montreal, Canada. He's been teaching a course about hip-hop's impact on culture for the last 10 years. But that's not all, of course. He appears in several films, including the 2009 City of Life. And if you've ever heard of the game... Actually, it was the game of the year, winning the simulator civilization. You've heard his voice as King Darius. I had no idea that Narcy had uh, <laughs> so many pots cooking Video out there, man. Video game cameo. <laughs> for, any br- <laughs> for any breaking the set heads out there, you may remember Narcy's insanely good musical performance on Breaking the Stage like 10 years ago or so, before it got deleted in the mass censorship campaign of all that sinister Russian-backed press, and got memory hold forever. It was the best thing any artist did on the show, and I would love to find it again, so if anyone out there has a torrent or archive, please let me know. Narcy, my friend, welcome to Dost. I'm so happy to be talking to you on the show. Yo, Abby, Mike, it's great to reconnect with you guys. I feel like we haven't spoken in a couple of years. 
I think the last time we saw you was on the Gaza Fights for Freedom tour when we passed through Montreal in 2019, and yeah. man, time flew. Yeah, tell me about it, right? <laughs> we got we got pushed through the second dimension. <laughs> <laughs> time stopped. I mean, talk about time traveling. Yeah. I feel like time just literally just slowed down with COVID, and shit just got really off the wall politically, man. Yeah, I mean, governments should really come together and go back to 2020. We should come to like a conclusion together and be like, let's start over. You know, we didn't gain those two years in age or in society. Let's just go back and start again. Dude, for real, for real. And plus, uh, man, I mean, I had one kid. I'm almost about to have another man. That <laughs> shit flew. Like how, how on earth? Yeah, man, it's just so it. crazy, dude. Um. Well, it's very good to talk to you. I've been wanting to do an interview with you for so long. I, I can't believe you came on Breaking the Set like over 10 years ago. You did an incredible yeah, performance. Man, dude, it's so crazy. But, I remember that day. First, yeah. time I, first time I walked by the White House in my life. Oh, really? You motherfucker. You motherfucker. Wait, was that you. the first time you were in D.C.? No, no, I've been oh, okay. to DC before, but I never like went near the White House. Right, you know? right. <laughs> but I remember, I remember, I had to walk by it to get to uh, where you guys were. Yeah, yeah, it's a very visually memorable trip for me. It's know? it's a really it was a really weird like visceral experience working there because of how the proximity of like a Russian news agency was to the center <laughs> of power, <laughs> like just a, a stone's throw from the white house. is just like, what, is, what is happening here? <laughs> like the fact that it was life, even life. <laughs> life is crazy. Narcy, do you remember the first time you and I met? Uh, I think it wasn't in Montreal. Was it? It was, it was kind of a funny story. If I'm allowed to tell it, I could always, uh, yeah, I'll, I can cut, it, I can cut this. This is just for the live listeners. I could always cut this, but <laughs> no, we like Abby and I arrived like late at night in Montreal for like an event we had the next day. I and, remember. And you, I just, remember and you just brought us, you brought us some weed because you were just that nice of a guy. We were like, we're tired. Yeah. We got an early event. We can't hang. And you're like, it's cool. I just want to make sure you guys are taken care of. And I was that. like, man, this I is a nice that. fucking guy. Just went out of your way. Cold ass night. Cold ass night. Nice, giant yeah. jar of weed. Giant. Listen, listen, we we are all fighters in the cubs. We need support. We almost stayed just to smoke it all. I think we, we had to like lot. leave it on the street or something. No, we just, gave it away. Man. You should have just called me. I'd have picked it back. Yeah, oh, sorry, right. dude. Don't sorry. even leave it on the street. We I made that part up. I we did that not do that. We definitely gave it to a, a couple people out there. Spread the love. Oh my God. <laughs> I, I gotta say, since since we last talked, I think I don't know if I talked to you, Mike, or I texted you or messaged you, but. You went crazy viral at one point for screaming at George Bush. Yeah. Which I'm sure you went through the ringer with that. I'm sure there was a positive and a negative to that. But That's as an sure. Iraqi, as a representative of the Iraqi people, and maybe not all Iraqi people, I want to thank you <laughs> for doing something that I dream of doing. <laughs> you know, it's like it's like the roller coaster I'll never be able to take. You hey, know, you know, hey, he uh he still sells tickets to his events, so it might, he Listen, might be coming to Canada sometime. Tour, <laughs> if he's going on tour, you best believe I got a pair of Yeezys that are in my closet now yes. because I don't know if I can wear them anymore. And they're waiting <laughs> to be thrown in his direction. Oh, that, would, yeah. that would be so symbolic on so many Yeah, levels. listen. Listen, that's my next music video. I'm just waiting for the Ooh. opportunity. Well, it uh, means a lot coming from you, man. And and also, you're the first person to acknowledge that there, of course, was a negative side to that whole virality. Of which course, is, uh, bro. Yeah. The internet is a hell of a drug. You know? It is, it is. Yeah, once things get that ultra-viral status where it's like, 
you're toward like over a hundred million and then it just keeps climbing and it's like oh then it just is like very meta i think uh, a, f- yeah. a friend said to me your personhood becomes abstracted or something mm-hmm. oh yeah very much of course so. yeah it's like in the matrix when the sentinels start eating through the ship and you gotta unplug <laughs> the thing before they get to it yeah that's what it feels like yep. going yep. it's like oh shit it's getting too close yeah <laughs> yeah one line mike i know you don't like talking about this sometimes but one interesting thing about it is i'm not i'm not really a tiktok head but like looking at all the tiktok responses and people watching it and reacting real time was so interesting it was very abstract um but yeah i mean bush has what his master class is that am i making that up or is there actually a bush that shit shit drove me crazy (laughs) i was getting youtube ads out of all i love how they're targeting you out of all the people out there to give a master class it's like really george bush he was like the bushisms like bush spoke like a moron a i mean what a ma- massive failure <laughs> like, there's a master class on couldn't even really speak bad english dumb it down and you gotta hit i mean that's really right. the, that's the way it works huh? right? well maybe yeah. there's some advice there oh man well narcy let's get into to you i mean First of all, you're not only an amazingly talented artist, you're also a creative design genius. Uh, what you wear, your videos, the visuals you you use to accompany everything you do, you have this kind of interesting combination of like Western hip-hop integrated with Middle Eastern fashion. What meaning does your aesthetic carry outside of it obviously looking really fucking cool? You know, my father was always, growing up, he, he was always the the uncle or the 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 member of the community that was the flashy one you know and it was always really loud and he's also a gemini and i think he always wanted to be an artist or a dancer so like i had that example in my life and then at an early age when i started rapping and hitting the stage i realized that if you wear some fly shit or some wild shit people gonna listen more (laughs) and and that it's stupid, but it's a visual culture. So it's like, oh, shit, if I wear this crazy head wrap in the midst of the war on terror, people are going to listen to what I'm saying. And then I could spit some ill bars and get off. And then people will go listen to the music or buy the CD. It was, at first, it was that. So it was always very like, I used to call it like cartoon Islamic. Like I would just have this like super wild piece <laughs> that I wear with my outfit. And it worked. But then it just started merging with my being and I just couldn't leave the house without something really wild looking. Um, it's cartoon. really memorable. <laughs> it is very memorable yeah. visually. Yeah. Somebody, somebody, who was it that called me like uh, Farrah Kanye once? I was like, that's <laughs> fucking genius. It might have been my sister, but it, but it was like, um, you know, I, I was doing a show in Australia and I met Supernat, who's, a, you know, a legendary freestyle MC, legendary MC. And he was like, he complimented me on my style. And he was like, word, you know, all these other MCs out here aren't really dressed to the T. And this is like the sixth element of hip hop. You got to be fly in order for people to really pay attention. And that stuck with me. And I just, I, I you know, I also like buying shit. It's, it's a problem. <laughs> so, you know, Man, it's, it's, those two things combined. It is really awesome. Um, I guess let's let's talk about that, like the fact that you, you know, you mentioned the war on terror and you came up as an Iraqi artist in the Arab hip hop scene. Like, I think I saw in an interview, you said you started hitting studios like literally just before 9-11. So I guess just talk about how difficult that was at the beginning to not only carve your own identity 
in this kind of sea of, you know, what was happening, this this wave of U.S. imperialism, the war on terror, and how you saw yourself taking on kind of a new responsibility as an artist in the wake of this reactionary anti-Muslim bigotry? You know, I'm coming up on my 20th year of recording music, not necessarily releasing music, but recording music. And and I've been thinking a lot about um, about that era and that time that we experienced. And when I started, you know, the first song I ever recorded in the studio was a song called The Letter, which was a, a letter to the United States government and just calling them out for everything they had done to Iraq before the before 9-11, you know, uh, that was the first thing that I put down on wax as like an official song that I, and it wasn't wax, it was digital, but I, it was the first thing I put down like as an independent artist to get off my chest before I could really find a place to like uh, describe myself as a person or, or find my identity as a musician. So that voice was always present in my work. And then when 9-11 happened, I was studying at Concordia studying both like audio engineering and learning how to use computers to make sound and music with my friends and then political science. So when I would hit the studio in the evening at the comms department, you know, and stay overnight until my 8 a.m. class to record, I was channeling all the shit that I was reading into my into my work, you know, into my music. And then obviously when 9-11 happened, it was immediately, it became a reactionary place that we were making music from. And and it was necessary, I think, now that I look back at it, we used to say music is therapy, but it was really a form of uh, dealing with the, like, the traumatic visuals that we were getting um, visually, like the visual trauma that we were receiving as immigrant Arabs in North America watching people that looked like us get bagged up and thrown in planes and disappearing and then bombs dropping and then eventually our country getting bombed and our families calling us from there and you know and and during the time it was happening in real time so we were really just on like fight mode you know we just wanted people to know like this is what's really happening to people on the ground. And this is how we feel over here. And it's all really unfair what's happening. It's all out of control. Um, and I think, you know, most artists would do it backwards. They would find a way to pop and then they would share their politics. But we were at such a pivotal point in history that we didn't feel right making music that wasn't about what was happening. And it was to our detriment, but also to our benefit because news media was paying attention to anything that was Muslim or Iraqi or Arab in North America. And they weren't really listening to the music or the lyrics. It was just a tokenizing experience. Um, so, yeah, I think that part of my career, like the first five to six years, kind of informed a very important part of my identity as to where I stood within that fight, but also gave me an identity crisis as to who I am as a person because within the hip hop industry, within Canada, within North America, and then from where I'm from, like, where do I really stand? And I think that's when I went solo and started um, touching on the more personal side of my life. I also experienced a huge personal trauma and lost one of the members of our group. You know, he passed away in 2004. So, and I remember sitting at the hospital when he was in the hospital and we watched, like, I remember we watched like a, a tsunami and a mudslide and, George Bush got reelected. George Bush got reelected the day he got hit by a car. And I was doing a show that was kind of like anti-Bush. And it's all so 
caught up for me that I forgot the political element of it and it became very personal. So that's where it merged with my music, really. You know, there's no separating the two experiences for me. Well, especially when the Iraq war happened, I can't imagine the impact on not only you personally, how that kind of solidified what you're talking about, but your artistic expression, how all of this personal trauma was overlaid with kind of international trauma. I mean, shit, mm. all these horrible events going on, George Bush getting reelected. I mean, you talked about the visual aspect of this traumatization of, you know, buildings getting blown up. I, It's interesting because Americans are such empire baby brained people that 9-11 was like just the end all be all of everything that we could ever imagine horrible happening, but you said something really poignant in one of your interviews about how like Arabs are used to seeing buildings blow up all the time. Like they're, you know, mm -hmm. monuments and statues and buildings and mosques. And it's just another day for, you know, wars that are just a permanent state um, in the Middle East. You mentioned, you know, obviously we've been at war with Iraq for what over 30 years now, if you're counting sanctions mm -hmm. and bombings in the nineties. So, mm -hmm. Um, I, I mean, I'll never forget being a freshman in college in San Diego State. It's a big military area. And when the bombing of Baghdad happened and people were just around me cheering as if it was a fucking video game. And it was a very disturbing moment because of just how detached we all were from the horror and the mass atrocities that were going on and that people were just embracing this as if it was a justified response <laughs> So I guess I guess just talk about the Iraq war and I and if that like just further motivated you to continue down this path cuz there weren't I mean as far as I remember I was pretty into underground hip hop at the time um Mortal Technique low key and I don't like they stood out because there was such a lack of political hip hop that was really touching on the true nature of empire at the time yeah, you know what's crazy, uh, Abby, is that I didn't deal with any of this shit until like last year. You know, I went, I finally went to like see somebody to kind of reorganize my thoughts. And I realized how everything gets so interlocked and interweaved in your thinking and your, the way you produce and move around the world based on these, especially being Iraqi, you know. Uh, you know, the, the the Gulf War or the war in Iraq started in, uh, I think it was like March, March 2003, maybe. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and then my friend passed in November 2004. And we worked on an album called Stereotypes Incorporated for that year. We started that album when the war started. You know, we had already put out the first Euphrates project. And, uh, you know, I was 21 at the time. Um we started working on the second album and we finished it in like seven months and all of it was recorded during the war. And, and, you know, there was like a real time digestion of what we were watching. But then when, you know, after we, after he passed away and we buried him and, and, and it all just became this very morbid, like consumption of death experience for me where, you know, you want to look away, but you feel guilty looking away because it's your people. And like, you know, the things I saw between 2004 and now, you know, are are so bad, for, were so bad for my psyche that I was fighting it with music, you know. Um, 
and I'm I'm experiencing it like third hand through media. It's not like I'm in person. But then my cousins would leave and come and immigrate and leave out of America and tell me like they used to see bodies walking to school and like you know you would get these third hand stories from family members and and then all my father's trauma from the 50s and experience of Iraq came back out and started sharing these stories and it was just like filling your hard drive with pictures of dead people you know without names and they all look like they could be your family member it was all very very disturbing to think about what we witnessed you know i remember when when for example when they hung saddam and it was all of a sudden and it was on cnn and shit and then like they were putting Oday and his you know and it's not about them but they were putting those guys on like the cover of magazines. Oh yeah, all shot up and shit. Yeah, the no, next was... day, so that they could yep. prove to people that they killed them. Like it's some cowboys. It's some cowboy shit. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and, and that shit is so messed up, man. If you think about it now, like that we allowed uh, empire thinking and colonial, you know, visual history to be dictated in such a visceral way on youth. You know. Um, and there's no justice for that. Nobody ever paid for that. Nobody ever, nobody will ever pay for that, you know? And they're running around gallivanting, doing master classes, like we're saying. It's like, it's so fucked up. Down to like now, Prince Harry came out, like a thing came out about his book, like where he said he killed 25 uh, people in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. you know? Like, and nobody's talking about it like it's no- normal, you know what I mean? And he's the good know. one. He's seen as the good one, the anti-racist. Yeah, because he, he took <laughs> mushrooms and did therapy, you know, and married a black girl. So it's like he, it makes him uh, awake all of a sudden. So I just feel like, you know, all this to say, like, I feel like we can't get any of that, that life back or that time back or the, we can't erase those images from our minds, you know. Um, I always say they showed us images of our dead bodies so that we forget about our souls. So they trap you in your physical body and the fear of losing your life in such a violent way that you forget about how powerful you are as a being and as a people, you know. And I made sure I didn't forget that through my music and my work and the work of the people around me. Wow. That's beautifully put. And it kind of just reminds me about, I mean, drones and what is it? U.S. Central Command who has a YouTube channel where it's just like this extremely weird abstract mass killing where every time they do a drone strike it's like shown real time like you can just like watch videos of all the drone it just it is it's extraordinarily disturbing and distressing to think that these are all people on the receiving end of these death machines yeah. um that we have no yeah. idea what the hell is going on and like you said i mean just how normalized that was that we just saw dead bodies the cowboys and indian style extrajudicial assassination of all of these people. Meanwhile, the war yeah. criminals, the perpetrators are just free to roam. And, and yeah, you know, it, um, it actually reminds me of something that you said in an interview in RC or on your show, actually your podcast that uh, really kind of, I felt was powerful and stuck with me. And it was that when you were, uh, when you were performing and you were getting a lot of attention and this is after the Iraq war had started you were almost being promoted by others as like a, a good Iraqi. And like, this is an mm. example of like the kind of people that were not 
killing in Iraq. Like this is the kind of people mm. that are on our side. And this is, not, this is exactly. And when really the lesson uh, was the opposite, that your idea of who an Iraqi is, is totally abstracted and dehumanized. And which is why they show the images of Saddam and Uday and Kusik. So like, these are the people mm. that are dying in war. And then when you see an Iraqi who is someone that you look up to or like, or feel is like you, that they don't want you to associate that with the Iraqis that were being killed when it, that absolutely is the lesson that people should have taken from, from seeing you and, and becoming a fan of yours uh, during that time. So yeah, I don't know. It just, um, you know, just that power in othering and dehumanization mm -hmm. is just like key to American wars and wars of other colonial and imperial powers. But it was just, extremely profound during the Iraq and Afghanistan wars and the so-called war on terror. And you kind of found yourself mixed up in that, but as like, you know, attempt, attempted to be used as like propaganda of the exact opposite lesson people should take from, from finding you and liking you. Yeah, it's, it's tough, man. You know, it's uh, you have a lot of like outer body experiences when you're making art about real time events you know, like sometimes I'll, I'll be at a film festival and I'll watch a movie about Syria or Iraq and it's such a good film and visually striking and so important. And then everybody will stand up and clap. Mm -hmm. And I'll be like, what the fuck are you guys clapping about? Yeah. Like, I get it. It's a good piece of art, but we shouldn't be clapping. You know what I mean? Like, it's that feeling. It's like this, like, um, consumption, consumption driven society where we're used to it eating the eating you know we're not eating the rich we're actually eating the dead you know what i mean and it's it's um yeah it's a weird place to be but it's also a responsibility it drives that responsibility home you know it makes you realize if somebody is paying attention that maybe i can break through the veil that's covering their eyes or their iphone and actually get to them to go research the depth of my my culture you know how many people i know from iraq that tell me stories of like I was I was sitting at a cafe and seven people died at the cafe or, or you know, somebody walked in and blew something up or my family was raided. Like, it's insane how much that happened. And it's almost like deleted now. It shouldn't be deleted, you know? No. And that famous study of, you know, a million dead Iraqis that people still quabble over the number yeah. and they're like, oh, no. And it's like, actually, it's like six million displaced or dead um, probably dead because of, you know, we're talking about infrastructure, all the effects of war that are not just direct killings from the U.S. military going in there, guns blazing. It's actually compounded in a much more dramatic way than we even understand. And having a war that is that, you know, horrific and devastating, I'm everyone has a story. Everyone has to have a fucking story who's, who's there because we said, you know, 30 years of war... Now the mass contamination, the birth defects, this is generational. This is not going to go away. I think that you, you, you know, even your family has been impacted by. Absolutely. This. My grandmother, my grandmother died from cancer, you know, um, she was living in Iraq through the, throughout the whole war. And it was like a, a, you know, I think she was probably the first one in our family to get cancer. So it's, I, I don't know if I can attribute it directly, but it felt like it you know, it felt like it was, it was definitely something that happened very quickly. And, and, you know, I looked up the term genocide just now, and it says, you know, the, the UN define, or, and you know, the UN isn't the best place to define things, but they define things as 
they define genocide as like a proven intent on a part of the perpetrator to physically destroy a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group. Mm-hmm. And I'm 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 quick to believe, like I really believe that there was an Iraqi genocide. The photos of the babies that you saw that were disfigured and born with, you know, um, with heart, you know, congenital heart disease or any kind of deformation from the kind of chemicals that were tested during the war, you know. It, to me, it was all, it was almost a, an attempted genocide of the Iraqi people. You know, luckily we don't die; we multiply. Iraqis are, you know, you know what I mean. We <laughs> we know how to live, but like, uh, it's insane how many people were killed and the methods at which, the lengths at which the government went to bombard and destroy not only the cultural infrastructure of our country but delete generations of children. You know. Um, it's definitely a war crime. And I, I just, you know, I'm at a loss of like, how do we approach that to, you know, at an international level as like a court proceeding? You know, it has to happen. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, some listeners may not know, but the United States actually passed a act that said that if any American were brought to trial at The Hague, the U.S. reserved the right or would uh, invade the Hague to rescue them militarily. The Hague uh, so, Invasion Act, right? Yeah, no, known as the Hague That's, Invasion wow. Act. Yeah, so uh, so with, of course there needs to be trials of Bush and, and others who are responsible for the atrocities you just described. But as long as you're holding a gun to the head of the whole world and got the biggest military and the biggest bombs and all that, then uh, you know it'll be hard for anyone to be brought to trial if the people holding the gun to your head are saying we will come and take you out if you try to you know. The law, the international law that everyone is supposed to agree with and abide by, and which, of course, the U.S. uses quite frequently to lecture other countries, uh, you know, will invade, you know, the Hague to prevent it from happening to one of their own. You know, Narcy, we were uh, talking you, about. Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, you know, like Rumsfeld died, man. He got away with it. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. he may not. He, yeah. may, he may not. He may not have gotten away with it with God or whatever the, the karmic justices of the universe. You know what I mean? But Dick Cheney's still around. You yeah. know what I mean? Bush is still Supposedly. around. Yeah. Like, I don't know if a Yeezy to any of their faces is enough. It might be a good TikTok moment and some visual justice. Mm-hmm. But, like, these men need to be held accountable for yeah. what they've done. You yep. know what I mean? Like, yeah. They're so, like, insulated, you know, from, from their crimes. that it's just like they just are, you know, friends with Ellen going to baseball games, painting puppies and, and soldiers, yeah, dead soldiers. Like, and that's, you know, it's it's so crazy. We're talking about this era as if we've all moved on, you know, like as if, you, you know, the Trump era came and went. Who knows? Trump could get reelected, <clears throat> which is really crazy. But there's so much that has happened. History seems to have sped up so much because of yeah. our technology and stuff. But it's like so crazy because <clears throat> I was looking at your YouTube channel and looking at that song fatwa which is a really mm-hmm. amazing song you talk Spelled about p h a t yeah fat, fatwa <laughs> um where you know you're rapping about guantanamo and mass detentions and you're talking about getting deported somewhere to die and it just it, it's so mind blowing to me like how my entire political awakening and consciousness was formed around you know the war on terror 911 guantanamo bay and guantanamo bay is just still exists it's just like mm. we're still there and and all these different iterations of that era are just you know re 
emerging, like with Ron DeSantis. Um, Mike just mm-hmm. broke this story talking to one of the prisoners from Guantanamo who talked about how Ron DeSantis has actually overseen the worst year of torture there and like laughing statistically at, you know, the force feeding of prisoners and stuff like that. It's just like, it's just so surreal that this hasn't even been touched upon in any of the coverage of this man. And he could be, you know, he could very well be the next president. (laughs) It's like these crimes are just so part and parcel with American society and empire that they just are not even addressed at all, even by like liberal media. It's just fascinating. I think, you know, these guys pay the, you know, they do the acts they need to do to get in power. It keeps them there. You know, you have to kind of, I don't believe you could take a position of power like that in the world for any government and not sacrifice your soul uh, and your soul being your moral compass. You know, none of these guys have a moral compass. They don't give a shit. They're a bunch of narcissists that want money and they don't see people. They see numbers. They see business. They see corporate interest. I don't even think it has anything to do with nationality at this point. You know, it's very clear that um that we're watching like a they're in their own reality TV show, except no one's filming. You know, they just think they're fucking superstars and uh, they have ultimate power. Like, I, I don't see a separation as much as I don't see a separation between, you know, uh, Saddam, the power vacuum, the, the power vacuum that came after him. And then the several groups that came and played chess on the floor in Iraq. I don't see a separation between Bush and Obama and and. and and Trump and whoever and Biden, whoever, they're all part of the same game. You know what I mean? Totally. Like they're all continuations of the same actions. There's no, you can't change the the role of the position that they're in. So I don't know how we can expect for the system to change, you know? Um, so we have to change, right. you know? And that doesn't, that doesn't mean we have to speak in their language or speak in violence, but we have to change the way that we approach um, our cultural work and and that and that was that for me it started with fatwa it was like how do i send this message you know by coding it with comedy or a form of people consuming it that it's acceptable and it doesn't look like the news but it's giving them the the opposite information that the news is giving them and i think we got to keep doing that i mean all the work you've done um both of you you know has been so crucial but it's just where we're fighting against that bohemoth. There's no, you know, we're just chipping away at it. You know, you have to keep chipping away and it is just getting to be bizarre. I mean, politically speaking in terms of where consciousness is heading, kind of the crisis cult, you know, people reverting back into kind of group think and mass hysteria Mm -hmm. and the QAnon Mm -hmm. stuff. And it's just like, it's like things that could become subversive political trends that are actual counterculture you know anti actual anti-establishment actual anti-empire is like turning into just kind of propping back up the core of power in a in an insidious way because you know a lot of people think that trump is really this outsider and like all these p all these forces political forces are really if you support them then you're actually doing something subversive and it's it's very interesting where how like the propaganda has pivoted and how a lot of this has been hijacked and superficialized even like you know the tokenistic stuff from liberals about black lives matter and stuff so it's a very interesting Mm -hmm. time because they it does seem to be one step ahead of where where 
we are always. And of course, I mean, they have how much fucking money at the helm? I mean, they know our psychology, mm. right? But it's just, mm. it's just incredible. Um, but one thing that is very interesting that's happening is the pro-Palestine stuff um, is, mm. is really taking root and just little things. I mean, of course, it always is adjacent to just terrorism being perpetrated on the people of Palestine, but there does seem to be waves of mass awakening in terms of the American people. This is reflected in polling. This is reflected on the streets when huge demonstrations that were completely historic came out in support of Palestine recently. And I think for the first time, you know, even Democratic Party voters are actually more sympathetic with Palestine than even Israel. Mm -hmm. And of course, the new government where Netanyahu is now <laughs> the third iteration of him being prime minister with an even more extreme yeah. far right coalition with actual terrorists, um, you know, Ben Gavir and all these crazy ass people who are like just openly in the government. It, the mask is definitely off. Um, you mm. have been such a supporter of Palestine for so long. You have a huge hit, Hamdallah. A beautiful mm. song. I mean, if you watch the video, it's a very humanizing song um, of brothers and sisters, uh, you know, headscarves, hijabs, featuring the great Shadia Mansour, famous Palestinian mm. rapper. This song is actually in the Netflix series Mo uh, by mm. Palestinian Mohammed Amir, who's also, if anyone's mm. seen Black Adam, cool movie. It was really cool to see him in the movie. And it's just really awesome to see Palestinian culture at a red carpet premiere. You know, here's mm -hmm. Mo with his mom or Muhammad with his mom wearing traditional Palestinian garb. It's just it's fucking awesome, you know, to see Palestinian culture embraced, put up on a platform like Netflix and to mm -hmm. just see this conversation becoming more prominent when during the Iraq war, you know, it was so taboo that people were just like, we can't possibly promote a free Palestine with anti-war messaging because it's too controversial and we're going to offer too many liberals. Yeah. I, I think about, I think about America and American media in a very distinct way. I've been kind of studying this like trend that I've been watching happen where American popular culture does not accept more than one culture in at once mm. <laughs> and i think i think and it's like waves and individuals and it's just a few examples of that culture then they move on to the next and make it acceptable and i think it, it, at one point it's like serendipitous and natural but on the other side it's uh, purposeful you know and and with palestine what i will say is you know during the last incursion with sheikh jarrah and you know or the invasion or occupation you know, we we witnessed a growth in consciousness around Palestine because we had been doing decolonial work as a people, uh, as a mass consciousness during COVID because we sat the fuck down and watched each other's lives from our homes and realized, oh, that's kind of fucked up that that's happening, you know? Like people who didn't really think about it were finally seeing the content that we were watching because we were on the side, we were on the Palestinian side witnessing what was happening uh, with them right so i think that the eye-opening around palestine had a lot to do with the decolonial work that was being done in the black community in the hispanic community in the different communities that were fighting um colonial structures around them you know uh 
And then with a guy like Mo, he had been grinding for as long as I've been grinding on music. I've known Mo for, you know, I, when I shot Alhamdulillah in, in Chicago at Iman's Take It to the Streets was when I met Mo. I met him Whoa. on that trip. Whoa. And he, he, remi- he reminded me of that the other day. He was like, yeah, I saw you running around with this dude with a camera with Radwan. And you were running around filming everything. And I was like, I want to be in the video. You know, he told me this the other <laughs> day when I saw him. And, and he's been grinding for just as long as I have been for comedy. And to see um, all these parts of popular culture or like mass culture accumulate together in order for his show to become a reality and for him to kick that door down because that door needed to be kicked down by somebody. It took a lot of work out of him and a lot of energy out of him. And and I hope people, you know, celebrate him for that. That's a huge feat for him to accomplish, you know. But even he knows, I'm sure, that that's one door you got to kick down. There's so many more that you got to do to get to the the final office or the final boss, you know. Um, and with Iraq, I think America is not ready to consume Iraqi culture at that level, right? you know, uh, because it's so close proximity to American identity, it's almost like put this shame behind a curtain. We can't look at it yet, you know? Um, Whereas Palestine is a bit further away in that, in that it's, you know, behind lobby doors. So I think eventually our culture will also break through in that way. Somebody will kick down that one door, but there's so much more work to do for both our communities in order for true justice to occur, you know? Yeah. I don't even know what that looks like anymore. Well, you know, on your point about Americans not being ready for uh, Iraqi culture, I mean, so much of it is uh, that means facing what America did, not just through the course of the war, but like, you know, everyone saw Iraq turn to the the ISIS crisis. And that Mm -hmm. I think in American consciousness that is interpreted as you know, Iraq's fault. I mean, this was a consequence of Iraqi mm. society, like not having a strong man in power anymore and, and all of these things and just the the nature of sectarianism in the Middle East and all of that versus this was like all outgrowth of the U.S. occupation and fragmenting of the country as a deliberate strategy to break up a national identity. And so, yeah, I mean, the the that was it was so recent and, and that's still, you know, there's it's still in a crisis and Iraq's dealing with crisis after crisis that can only be attributed to the U S invasion. Um, but back to this. Yeah. And I think if if I, if I can just say too, I think like we don't need to be defined by the American war, Mm -hmm. you know, anymore. It's important that people start seeing Iraqis not defined through the lens of America anymore. Even if we are living in America or North America, we don't have to be defined by them or by our proximity to their violence, you know? It's very important that they start seeing the human story, just like what Mo did with his story about his, him and his mom is in Texas. Mm-hmm. You know, there was no explicit, there was a few explicit mentions of Palestine, but it was done in a very metaphoric way throughout the entire show that you you consume the story of a, a particular family going through it in Texas, and it had nothing to do with the war relationship that you usually tie us to. Mm-hmm. So now I think, it's it's the the responsibility of people in our community in the diaspora as well as on the ground in Iraq to start telling our stories outside the context of the the violence that they projected upon us, you know. And I think only then can we really send a a, a most beautiful message about who we are, you know. It's interesting you said earlier that like Americans 
eat their dead and the consumption culture of even people who are maybe well-intentioned, you know, watching films about the externalization of our violence mm-hmm. as a war machine. We weren't allowed to show – interesting contrast is that it was actually – no one was – press was not allowed to show dead American soldiers for most of the Iraq war. Mm-hmm. But you could definitely show lynched Iraqis if they had been bad, quote-unquote. Yeah, yeah I, I remember bodies. a puppy getting – I remember a puppy getting thrown off a mountain in Iraq by some soldiers and it became pub- like it was on CNN. Mm-hmm. Like it bl- blew my mind. You know, I remember that vividly. Like what? Like you're rep- there's so many kids that died that day. You know? Right. Uh, yeah. Not a puppy. Yeah. No, no, not the puppy. I remember <laughs> yeah, Michelle right? Malkin like saying that that like somehow rationalizing that. That was that was a weird. <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean, this person is a Asian American who defends the internment camps. Is, like... Yeah, that um, puppy, that puppy played a role in all our consciousness. It was an important. Puppy. Was. I mean, sometimes people care more about it did puppies not die than in vain. human. I did not die in vain. That puppy. <laughs> Some people uh, do care more about little puppies than they do humans. It yeah. might be easier to, you know, digest um, yeah. mass death of the human beings. So, but no, it's yeah. it's such a crazy point, and it's also just crazy for people who may not know how taboo it is to even like talk about what Palestine is. I mean. You know, mm. that that famous map of like Palestine being chipped away and how the MSNBC anchor like accidentally showed it a, a very <laughs> honest map and then had to completely retract it, even though it was totally true, verifiable, uh, the atomization of the West Bank and then like NPR and all, the, you know, all these other publications that have to like retroactively go and apologize for saying mistakenly saying the word Palestine. So mm. even though Americans tend to create entertainment about things that we don't resolve politically, you know, far from it. Mm. Like there's a movie about the Flint water crisis and Flint doesn't have clean water. Like, like shit like that. Yeah, is just so it's weird so quick me, now. Know? It's yeah. so quick. It's so now. crazy. Yeah. They turn it around so quick. It's so much quicker. You know, the budgets get unlocked <laughs> oh. in the same year of the issue. Dude, know? like I, I've been noticing it recently. There's, I've seen like three like shows or films that deal with the issue of like missing native women, you know, how there's oh, this yeah. crisis of native women yeah. being like kidnapped yeah. and possibly murdered and stuff. And there's all these shows like about people investigating the thing. And it's like, I'm pretty sure nobody's fucking solved this shit, dude. How are there already just shows about how <laughs> yeah. these detectives yeah. are like solving or journalists, whatever. And it's like, wait, this is, this is like just came out as like a, I don't know. It's very weird. There's like a lot of media out about that specific issue now when it is like definitely still just some kind of massive, like unaddressed problem. Yeah. And if you think about that, you know, there's a, there's a big consciousness around indigenous identity in Canada, mm-hmm. obviously more than America, I think. Um, and, you know, we, we have become aware in the last 10 to 15 years, just, just the tip of the iceberg of, you know, they started uncovering kids' bodies at churches here, you right. know, that were in residential schools, like, in mass, you know? And and all we got was, like, a teary-eyed prime minister and a sorry, you know? And I think <laughs> if that history... I mean, look, he's a, he's a sexy prime minister, but it's not enough. The, if, if, <laughs> well, if Fidel that, is his dad. That, yeah, but I mean, you know, you know, that sexiness you know, comes from if, Fidel. <laughs> But like, you know, in in that situation, we still haven't, and that was, you know, that wasn't that long ago, but it was long ago, and we still haven't come to a place in society where they go, 
yeah, that's so fucked up. We need to fix it. Not right. we need to apologize yeah. for it. Right. Right. So with with Palestine, I, I you know, I mark my words and maybe I won't be around when this happens or we all won't be around when this happens. But people will look back at what ha- what's happening in Palestine and what has happened in Palestine and see it as an as the atrocity that it is. We are like living a live, you know, a live colonial project. There aren't many of them going on on Earth right now. There are a few that are so vividly clear that there's a government agenda to move a people and erase a people's identity, you know? Um, and I think in like, you know, God forbid any time longer than that, but in 30 to 40 years, there's going to be some sort of acknowledgement of that. There has to be. Or you know? That's what's so surreal about it is this liberal embrace of you know the land acknowledgement do colonialization remember, do you remember that story of uh there's this woman who was like oh god god sorry no, no no i was just i was just gonna add to your point about how like we talk about colonialism we you know we denounce christopher columbus we talk about it like colonization as if it's this long past thing it's when over. there's an active yeah. project that has been 70 years in the making that is being sponsored by our tax dollars every single day and it's yeah, i couldn't it's agree crazy. more it's the most bizarre detachment from reality especially like people who call themselves progressive and stuff yeah it's was, learned behavior it's mm-hmm. learned behavior there know? was a i was gonna see if either of you remember this story i don't fully remember the details but there was this woman who's like a tech worker i think she worked at twitter and her and others at twitter were were in there was a meeting where people were going to be reprimanded for uh like supporting bds publicly or supporting palestine publicly mm-hmm. or whatever and mm. the Twitter, whatever execs or whoever was managers, they like began the meeting with a land acknowledgement oh of like God. what native mm. land they were on and Silicon Valley or whatever, and then proceeded to talk, say how it was against the <laughs> code of conduct oh for employees gosh. to like support Palestine. It was just like some really uh, bizarre shit. But yeah, Identity no, you know, gonna I, <laughs> I think it comes down to, and I, I felt this very viscerally too when we were protesting against the Iraq war at the time, and I think that was around the last time that I protested in person a very long time ago, I'd done a couple, a couple since, but I got very disillusioned with protesting because I remember the feeling of like going in the street and having so many people in the street and then going back home tired and turning the TV on and watching all the worldwide protests of millions and millions and millions of people. And nobody does anything about it. Like it doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't create a dent in the decisions and the actions of the people in power and, and feeling like, oh, so my democratic right is just a right for to the act, not to what I'm acting for, you know? Like, I can go out and scream what I believe in, but nobody's going to really listen. if Even if we're, there's a million or two million or four million of us that feel this way, it still doesn't make a difference. So really, democratic rights are just the right to act. They're not the right to change anything. And that that's... Until that changes, and I don't know how that changes, I'm, you know, I'm not low key. I won't be able to eloquently present to you how to say this. But like, <laughs> you, you know, until that changes, I feel like we're not going to have change. And I don't know if systematically, like, we've been trapped in a in a like a panopticon of decisions. It's almost like jeopardy. You have only have a few options, you know. And and when you run out of those options, you got to go home. There's nothing else you can really do. 
you know? Yeah. You know, I've always felt that protests are important shows of solidarity with people who are under Absolutely. attack and important for the historical record to show that there was opposition. But really, to accomplish what you're talking about, protests have to be nurseries for revolution and revolutionaries. And have to maintain some sort of militancy, too, because when they're defanged, it does just become kind of an appendage of like, oh, yeah, it's like a show of, of our so-called democracy where it's like, oh, look, we allow this doesn't impact our decisions, but this is this is your right. You know, it's kind of like patronizing from s certain sectors of the ruling class to just like kind of placate our, you know, quell our fucking activism in that way. But um, I want to go into, you know, all the collaborations you've done, all the people that you've worked with, like Yasin Bey, otherwise known mm -hmm. as uh, Mosdef, Talib Kweli, You've done so much to work with such incredible artists over the last several decades. I want you to talk about that. I mean, how has that impacted your career? Kind of some of the highlights on that. And then, you know, also you discussing how a lot of times you're overwhelmed. You know, you many times you want to quit. Um, but mm -hmm. it always just turns into another chapter, another lesson to be learned with how you can change your artistic expression, maybe go down another road, but it's never about truly quitting what you do. It's just about acknowledging that this is human nature. You know, the music industry is very difficult. Music is so immediate and comes from such a personal place when you're attached to the art and not, not the industry, you know, um, that it's painful to uh, acknowledge you, you know your dreams versus reality i think it's it's you know the, the pipe dreams of a of a rapper are, are, can it can feel like mario brothers you know like there's so many pipe dreams and you don't know which one's the right one you know so like at a young at a young age i made a decision i had a few experiences in the music industry that made me realize like i'm not a part of that you know if the right deal came across and it was from the right person i would definitely consider it and take it but it's never happened. You know, I think part of the, the experience of losing somebody at a young age and plowing through my grief made me close to let anybody into my cipher and be involved in my business. Right. So I went solo, solo, solo. I was booking my own shows and uh, running around the world and mixing my own music and writing my own lyrics and, and co-producing my albums and pressing my CDs and selling them hand to hand. I did all that shit on my own in my twenties, you know? So when I hit my thirties and I hit a good stride, I started meeting. Um, I started just naturally, I've never seen music as transactional. Anytime that I've made music transactional, it's backfired on me. Right. You know? And, and I think music is a spirit that you interact with. And if you, if you treat it badly, it'll treat you badly. So anytime I tried to transactionally work with somebody, it didn't work. Something, something went awry, you know? Um, but with people like Yasin or Kuali, it was never transactional. It was like a spiritual meeting, a friendship that developed over time and then became a musical collaboration, you know? And I think I gained Kuali's trust because I gained Yasin's trust. And then I gained... Dave's trust because of because of Yasin and Mo, you know, and most of the 
most of the Muslim brothers and sisters that I've met in the music game have really carried me up to in, within communities and and helped me kind of continue on, you know. During the pandemic, um, Mo called me actually, and he was in Yellow Springs, Ohio, and he was like, what are you doing? I was like, bro, I'm at home, like hazmat suited up. What do you mean, what am I doing, <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know, I can't even breathe moistly, according to the leader of our country. So like, I gotta be careful. He's like, yo, come to, come to Yellow Springs, you know? When I went there, I was really embraced by Team Chappelle and, and Kwali was there and Nico was there. And I realized that these are the friends that the, the musical, my musical experience invited into my life because I never bowed to industry rules and neither did any of these guys, you know, or, or sisters or brothers that are around me on this trip. They're all independent creatives. Even if they went through the ringer with the industry, they came out it with their soul and they said, we're never going back in there, you know? Um, so yeah, it's been a blessing and like they keep me, they kept me going during hard times. I think the moments where I was feeling like I want to quit were breakthrough moments. It's like, a, it's like, a, it's the, being a musician is almost like a, it's bipolar. It's like you feel these extreme highs and then these low lows. And in those lows, if you don't get yourself out of them, you're not going to break through. And I broke through a bunch of times because of people and, and, and colleagues and musicians. So I was indebted to Yasin and Mo before, I mean, Yasin and Kwali before I met them for the education that they gave me through Black Star. But then when I met them, they gave me even more gems and they continue to kind of bless my life as, as friends. So I'm very grateful for that, you know. And it's interesting that you talk about this marketing marketing necessity to be a musician and to, you know, go through the ringer of the industry. And it's just funny because like you used to go by the name narcissist, um, which is like a <laughs> tongue in cheek moniker mm. on you know the narcissism the shallowness of our society and culture i'm imagining but like mm. you know now you go by narcy but it's just so interesting because i feel that pressure too i'm i hate mm. capitalism but like we have to market ourselves to a certain extent mm. it's mm. it sucks it's like how do you juggle making the art because you know we're we're in this conundrum too where it's like we have to fucking constantly market ourselves I have to put my face on everything like it's this horrible dichotomous struggle that I don't want to participate in but I have to in order to put our stuff out there in the system that mm. we live in but I also like I mean we clearly the art should be all that really matters like what you produce is really what matters and if that speaks to people then that speaks to people but at a certain point you know, you're always going to stay in this kind of subculture because you aren't buying into the game. You're not, yeah. you know, trying to throw yourself to adapt to mainstream expectations and like getting an agent to, to propel you in that way. So it is kind of yeah. like you're going to be forever in this like real realm. <laughs> you know, it's just like yeah, super weird. Yeah, of course. Of course. I think, I think like, I know I'm not good at um I know I'm not good at marketing myself. I'm very aware of that. Like I'm good at presenting myself, but I'm not good at selling myself, right? Which is why a Rockefeller works so well because it wasn't me, it was something outside of myself. Mm -hmm. And anytime I've done something that's like attached to me but outside of me, it's I've been able to sell it, you know? 
But anytime it's about me, I think I'm too aware. Uh, and shout out to the communications department at Concordia for teaching <laughs> me this. But I'm I'm too aware of the medium that is being consumed and the dangers of it, as well as the the pros of it. So like that's why the work is strong. But then the the marketing element of it's like I'm not gonna fucking pay Facebook to put this song as an ad for somebody to see it. Fuck Facebook. Why would I give them money? You know, it's not going to bring me more money. If I put $5 in the, or $50 into Facebook, how much of that $50 is going to come back to me in the long run? I'd rather sell five t-shirts, you know? Uh, so <clears throat> I don't know. I, I've accepted, I've accepted where I'm standing. And I, I kind of like, I look at MF Doom as, as, a great example of what kind of artist I want to be. I want it to be like this mythological object that's like outside of me afterwards, you know? Uh, I changed my name only because when I was walking into places to get money to shoot videos and people would introduce me as the narcissist, people would laugh at me, you know? <laughs> and I was a, I was the smartest guy in the room. And I don't say, I don't say that in a narcissistic way. But I knew, like, I'm smarter than you guys. I made it here on my own. I didn't have to apply for a job, you know? Um, so I, when I changed my name, it was for several reasons. That was one of them. But the other one was, you know, what you put out into the world is um, with music, it comes right back to you. So people started treating me like I was a narcissist in my life. And, and I started thinking maybe I'm walking around looking cocky to people, but really I'm just confident in who I am and what my mission is, you know? So I, I shifted to Narsi and now I'm, I'm searchable on all uh, social medias alongside a bunch of Filipino girls. So I don't know if I made the right decision. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's literally a Filipino girl's name. So <laughs> is it really? <laughs> yes. And it also is short for selfies. So now I'm surrounded by a bunch of selfies and Filipino girls. <laughs> That's fucking hilarious, man. Well, let's yeah. talk about your book, Text Messages, or How I Found Myself Time Traveling. Um, yeah. You wrote it all on your cell phone. Uh, mm. Talk about how the hell you did that. That seems totally impossible. And, you know, mm. do you have carpal tunnel now? Like, how fucking difficult <laughs> was that to write a book of, I you know. a small <laughs> iPhone back in the days, too. <laughs> you didn't even have the um, big one. Um, and like, what do you mean by the subtitle of your book that you were time traveling? Yeah. So, you know, I met, I got the opportunity to make that book because of Jeremy Scahill inviting me to the intercept and Naomi Klein, uh, being on a panel with me at the intercept and them introducing me to Anthony from Haymarket. And I had a, I had a meal with him one day and he was like, Hey man, you want to put out a book? What are you working on? And I was like, yeah, yeah, totally. I want to put out a book. And I always wanted to put out a book, but I didn't have a book, you know? <laughs> Shout out, Anthony. I, I'm just being honest. I was writing a bunch of shit, but I didn't have a book. And then when he approached me, he asked me a few questions, and it it made me think a lot about, like, what kind of message do I want to put out into the world? You know, this was a year and some change before the pandemic. And I was going through my phone Cause I write all my, I write, I used to write all my raps on my phone and I had a subfolder on my phone with poetry and then a subfolder with short stories on my phone, you know? And uh, one of my favorite books, like physically is the medium is the message by Marshall McLuhan. So I read that book 
And I took a lot of pointers from the design of that book to have like a multi-genre approach to writing a poetry book. I didn't just want to, I was never big on spoken word, you know, like the delivery. I always loved beats. So I never loved the delivery of spoken word. I don't like reading my poetry out loud. I'm too self-conscious. So <laughs> when putting this, when putting this book together, I started rummaging through all the stuff that I had written on my phone when I would travel on tour on my own, you know? Um, and there was so much, there's so much that's not in the book. There was so much that I put into the book, but there's so much that I left out with the editor, uh, with Maya who edited my book. Um, and yeah, I mean, it feels like an impossible feat to write on the phone, but with all the time that I spent on planes, trains, and automobiles as a musician, I wrote so much, you know, over the course of maybe eight, eight years of my life. Um, I, and I'll, and like I said, I was touring on my own. I didn't have a DJ. I do all those visual shows. You know, when I came to breaking the set, mm -hmm. I was alone, you know? So when, when I spent that time alone, I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and I dug deep in order to like find myself. So when the book came together, the final title of the, the book was text messages. Cause literally these were messages I wrote to myself in text on my phone and individually, each one of those is a, each one of the pieces in that album is a message made of text. And then how I found myself time traveling was because I was literally moving between spaces. And when you're floating above the earth on a, on a giant bird that's filled with fuel, you know, you're kind of in limbo. You have to let go of the time that you live in and you're changing time zones. So that's really what it was about, you know, how I found myself time traveling. And there's some great art in there as well. Um, I, I highly mm. recommend the book. People really should buy it because the meat of the book is kind of a the joke visuals. off of its name. I mean, it's it, there's really incredible messages in there about technology and the kind of mm. separation that we find ourselves witness, witnessing through things like social media when we're looking at, you know, these 15-second reels of refugees mm. or bombings or kids who are suffering. Sneakers. And we're just like, yeah, we're just like sitting, you know, wherever we are in the world witnessing the through this through the lens of something like a phone and it's this mm. gross detachment from reality and you are able to articulate that incredibly well through this poetry um mm. you know like Thank you. it's really amazing I also like that you're you a, a rapper who doesn't like to read his poetry out loud. <laughs> <laughs> I usually scream my poetry on top of beats. That's why. No, but you know, I remember when I was talking to the team at Haymarket, I was like, yo, listen. I was like, yeah, they must have thought I was crazy. I was like, I want the book to be the exact shape of an iPhone. You know? <laughs> and I want it to look like an iPhone. I don't want text on the front. I want it to be all black. They were like, that book is not going to sell, bro. You know? So you I had to find that. a way to <laughs> I have like two messages the medium. They're like, bro, you're too meta. Hey, but you know, Mao's Little Red Book was one of the best selling books ever. I was a smaller <laughs> than an iPhone. You could they could have done it. <laughs> yeah, I mean I you've talked about like, you know, for example, your song Verge, um, about this this feeling of being overwhelmed by just news consumption and how and this is like you really articulate how I feel all the time with the 24-hour news cycle, the fact that as news consumers and news producers, it's like we are expected to be plugged in all the time to all of the crazy shit that's going on. How, what does that do to you? How does that break you mm. down psychologically, psychically? 
also. Mm. And you talk about how, you know, just having this conversation or just internalizing that feeling of that overwhelming nature of technology of everything feels like it's on the verge, like the brink of just collapse, like disaster meltdown. You know, I wrote that piece. Uh, Ironically, that's the piece that I wrote. I had to perform at the, at the intercept live um, in New York uh, on, and I was on a panel, I think it was New York or Toronto. And I was on a panel with Naomi uh, or no, it was the New York show. And I had to, I had to perform a piece and I didn't have anything. I was like, fuck, like, what am I going to read? You know? And I wrote that piece on the plane on my way to New York. It was a 45 minute plane ride. And I wrote that piece and performed it that night that I wrote it. And no that was way. the night I met Anthony. Yeah. And that was the night that I met Anthony. So it was like, that's really the sense you picked it up. That's the central piece to the book. You know, that's the reason the book exists. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. That's pretty, that's pretty amazing that you were able to bust that out. Or do you work well under pressure when you're like, Oh shit, I, have, I, I, work, have anything I only work. I only work under pressure. I'm a Gemini, man. I'm like, yo, put me in the most under pressure situation. I got two sides that are going to battle this, you know? You, you definitely yeah, are one of those I, people that Abby and I are like, how is he doing all this stuff? Um, and to know that yeah. you actually don't have like, it would be a lot if you had it like a staff. But Yeah, no, that's like, I wish so I had a staff. I would get so much done. I'd be annoying. You probably could, uh, but... Uh, You're lucky I don't have a staff. <laughs> Um, and not only do you do all of this, but you also teach a course about hip hop. And since I, you've taught it since 2011, right? Uh, 2013, 2013 was when I started. Yeah. When I started like, so this is my 10th year. Uh, I started solo teaching it. Yeah. Uh, it's called hip hop past, present and future. You teach it at Concordia university. I mean, I'm pretty sure this mm. is like one of the only courses of its kind in the world. I've never heard of <laughs> this anywhere else i mean how the fuck did you start teaching an academic class about hip-hop well you know i studied at concordia and i remember like when i graduated i always tell i always tell my wife i'm like yo it's a sundas i'm gonna get an honorary phd she's like because my parents are always like you need to go get your phd and just become a full-time <laughs> Dude, that teacher. is one way to do I'm it like, man hell yeah <laughs> i'm like no nah, i'm gonna get that honorary joint trust me it's gonna come you know um and um I remember like knocking at the communication department door at Concordia and I was like, yo, I need to teach a hip hop class here, you know? Uh, and they were like, no, you can't, you don't have a PhD. This was like, uh, you know, 12 years ago. Uh, I was in my delusion. I was probably wearing a fez or something when I walked in. Right. <laughs> and I, and, and I was, and they were like, no, you're not ready. You haven't taught anything. And like, I always knew that I would come back to the classroom, you know? And it came to me in a way, this, this guy, Mark Peters had invited me to, co-teach one of his classes and then the next semester he was like hey why don't you come teach half the semester because i want to do other classes and um eventually when i came back in 2013 to montreal he was like take the hip-hop class i think i think i gotta focus on studio arts or whatever so i took it and i grew it from i think it was 48 students to 72 students to 200 students a semester dude and then I re- and then you know I treated it like a show. It was like okay, this is the first album, second album, third album. And then I was like, there's too much in hip hop to cover in 12 weeks, so I need to split it. So I turned it into uh, Beats, Rhymes, and Life, which was a production course. And then it's bigger than hip hop: The Power of Us, which is about you know identity construction, social science, political science, the birth of hip hop, um, and, and like uh, racial relations in, in North America. 
and then I taught that all the way through until the pandemic and I was on Zoom for two years, you know. Um, and with students, it's crazy because they're 18 to 21 for the last 10 years of my life and I'm getting older, right? And I'm witnessing the change in how they think mm-hmm. or the, how they're affected by media. And I realized like, media literacy is a big part of this. Like they need to be aware of what they're consuming and they have more awareness than we did, but they've lived their entire life with, with a cell phone, with a smartphone. Right. So how do I infuse like a media literacy into their work? So I started taking artists as examples to instead of focusing on the grandness of the culture and the diversity within the culture, I started taking one artist's work and fleshing that out into 13 weeks of concepts that we can that we can think about, you know, which is where the idea around Kanye came last semester. And then this semester we're doing Kendrick. And then next semester I have to pick somebody <laughs> to do it on, you know? It's an incredible so, yeah, it's, syllabus. I mean, to I looked through your new syllabus about Kendrick and, mm, you know, mm. I, I love that your course starts with kind of deconstructing identity in general because mm. – You've been talking about how personally hip hop is, you know, it can be a political outlet, but basically everything is political when you really kind of extrapolate that, like the sense of self and how society is made up of all these classifications and how limiting and constricting it is and how they're used for forms of control. And um, it's, it's a really kind of incredible approach to this because when people, you know, I know that you got a lot of press, especially for the Kanye West, um, you know, throughout his tailspin, it was like the beginning. It was really crazy that there was this big academic course about Kanye West. And then you had to comment on his mid, <laughs> uh, you know, mm-hmm. veering into uh, all the sordid anti-Semitic stuff. And then, but your point was that this is, this is kind of critical theory that you're looking at through like tragic characters almost like if you're looking at someone like Kanye I mean the way that he's risen and fallen it's like he's like the tragic hero of his own story um and it's fucking insane where he ended up I mean there's a full Hitler fetishism and and embrace of neo-nazism yeah it's it's you know Kanye as a first iteration of this class was so important you know I didn't expect it to go viral. I was like, yo, I think I need to hire a PR agent to like, uh, at the, at the, before it went viral, I was talking to my friend and I was like, yo, I'm about to teach this Kanye class. He's like, that's crazy, bro. You should really like market it and like, you know, make it a part of your brand. And I was like, oh, really? Like, how do I do that? You know? <laughs> and, uh, and, and he was like, you should hire a PR agent. And then I had conversations with PR agents and they were like, this is an amazing news story, you know, like, and I've never gone viral before for any of my own shit. So <laughs> I didn't know how to do it. You know, and, and I know sometimes you don't do it. It just happens. Right. So they were like, yeah, it's going to cost like six G's for two weeks. And like, you know, we're going to try to get you press. And, and I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? The university <laughs> doesn't pay me enough to pay six G. It's not, it's not even my shit. Like, why am I going to do that? And then somebody tweeted it out and it went crazy. Like TMZ called me within. 24 hours, Whoa. you know? Yeah, and I was like, why are you calling me right now? You know? <laughs> and why was I about to so, pay six grand to make this happen? Yeah, right? for this. Like, I just did it. It was done for free, you know? Um, and I think what was interesting about the Kanye experience was at the beginning, like, it going viral and understand, 
what it made me understand was like the insanity of being famous and how unnecessary it is for happiness you know uh like i got to experience this like microcosm of what he might experience or my a celebrity a very famous person might experience right it was exhausting for a week you know mm-hmm. uh and 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 i had to tread so many lines like it's not my place as a visitor within hip hop culture to speak on a black man and his experience of america and what he might be going through with his armenian ex-wife who's dating a white comedian it's none of my fucking business you know uh, to to comment on that particular thing but then to also comment on his relationship to america and the things he may have said out loud like i have to be very careful in public as well as in the classroom and then when i got in the classroom and it was a reality it was so exciting and all the students were really excited we started off having these amazing classes about college dropout and the meaning of alternate forms of success and and then next thing you know it was like oh my god i have to talk about antisemitism and then like <laughs> uh, and then like the next week you know jewish students felt uncomfortable and i had to like comfort them through the work and we had to talk about franz fanon and the bylines between black and jewish identity and uh, during struggle and standing together in protest in france and how important that is and and it not being enough and then getting dragged through the media in french canada about zionist student groups uh, or or sorry not zionist student groups but student groups asking me to like apologize for kanye and use this as a moment to teach antisemitism when like the whole point of my class was to be open and for us to like heal together you know and have these conversations around the importance of community and togetherness in these kind of moments so kanye kind of played into it in a very important way and it, we had some very very um like very healing moments in my opinion you know because people had assumptions about me because i'm pro palestinian right? right right so so it all got very convoluted and i was like whoa 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 this is not about me like don't attach me to things somebody else is doing i'm just a professor this was never like a pro kanye class this was us us studying kanye as an example of what to do and what not to do when you're in public you know um and then thank god we finished class and then he went on his hitler tirade <laughs> the do's and do nots do not say i you know, really I really, really love, love hitler, hitler on Alex yeah Jones. no no it was terrible it was it was like what are you doing it was, you know and and like i don't have any proximity to kanye himself but i know people that know him and it was like i would ask them for advice like what do i do like i would ask wally like what the fuck do i do he's like bro welcome to my life you know um so i was i'm grateful for that experience it taught me a lot as a teacher and and i had already planned kendrick to be this semester mm-hmm. anyway we were, i only wanted to deal with kanye like only wanted to deal with the artist once you know um to keep the content fresh um and, you know i got these kids to these 20 year olds and 18 year olds to read france fanon and 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 like you know uh i mean maluf and and edward said and stuff like that was really the point of it was just to get out of those 200 students if i can get 10 of them to pick up orientalism or to pick up culture and imperialism or to pick up you know uh black skin white mass then i've done my job you know and the same same goes with kendrick 
they're all we're all flawed people so it's never like a pro celebrity class you know it's always critical like that's the that's the main point right no exactly that's what's so fascinating about the syllabus and about how you represent these figures through the class and what they represent about our society i mean really that's that's what this is um and what's so interesting about the whole kanye spectacle was like it really i mean i can't even imagine how much you were (laughs) singled out for the class during the course of this and demand you know demanded apologies and stuff on his behalf which is just so ludicrous it was just it was just such a gross insult to palestinians because unfortunately kanye kept conflating i mean it was fucking horrible what he said in so many aspects Mm -hmm. but like Mm -hmm. to go out there and just say zionist 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 it's like what the fuck are you talking about and just conflating all this shit together is just it was just so harmful on so many levels and um, I just I do not envy your position of being uh, there at that point when all that. Shit I did it to myself. I did it to myself, Abby. I did it to myself. <laughs> you had a great idea. It was my choice. You, you did have, have a great idea. idea, but Kanye had another idea. <laughs> yeah, man. There was no you stopping did. him, dude. He definitely had another. Idea. Um, Absolutely. Well, no, I I I mean it's super cool. How many kids are enrolled in the Kendrick court or? Kind of uh, we're course. full. We're tapped out. It's, it always gets tapped out when it gets annoyed. Yep. We're, we're at 200 people, Damn, you know, dude. and and what what I'm excited about with Kendrick is obviously, you know, his music and his art is so um, so multi-layered, you know, and, and in this semester we get to go to a Basquiat exhibit and like have them juxtapose that with one of his a piece of his with one of his songs and talk about the history of, you know, uh, black art in america and how you know the through line and some of these things that we might not we might not connect and then Mm. watch all his music videos and write an assignment about it or or uh talk about grief because you know a lot of his music deals with grief so we have two sessions in the class one of them being a session about what is love for this generation and what is fear and grief for this generation you know and and for them to use these spaces as like healing spaces um as well as critical spaces to think like the, the reading, the reading course pack includes stuff like, you know, Eckhart, Eckhart Tolle stuff to, you know, again, I mean, Ma'loof and Michael Eric Dyson and Angela Davis and, and mm-hmm. Jack Alul and Murray Foreman and Jeff Chang and Mark Lamont Hill. And so like, that's really the exciting part of it is like, what are we all going to get out of this? You know? Um, yeah, who knows? Who knows what I'm gonna do next? I'm sure. It's, I'm sure it's really. <laughs> what I, yeah. See if I can shoot myself in the other foot. <laughs> yeah, anticipate who else is gonna go full Nazi. And Fall is for controversy, <laughs> and then winter is for calm, my friend. <laughs> well, you yeah. speaking of calm, uh, I'm sure the winters in Montreal are pretty intense, and you also run a bookstore with your wife called Maktaba. Um, mm-hmm. It seems like a really cool cultural space, and you also have a new album coming out. Is it called "There Will Be No More Messengers"? Is that what the I haven't decided? Okay. What, I haven't decided what I'm going to call it yet. I'm like in the throes of the. Mm-hmm. I'm in the. I quit. I'm like at the tail end of the. I quit phase right now. So um, <laughs> that's where the I best shit's going to come out of. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. I know. I know the best shit's going to come out now. And well, um, I have a, I have a couple of titles that are leading the concept for the record, and I think once the record is complete, is when I'll choose the title. It's like a baby. 
You know? Well, I think it's your best album yet. I think it's fucking phenomenal. Yeah, thanks for the sneak peek. We've really mind blowing stuff. Um, let's take a couple calls if if you don't mind. I want to be respectful of your time. If you have, no, I know absolutely. you have a full family yeah. and a bunch of shit going on. But let's let's do it. This is off time for me. I'm having fun. I hell get yeah. to talk to friends. Hell yeah, yeah. Let's let's check out what some people have to say, and then we'll close out with. Uh, with a little sample track from your new album. Yeah, and we'll uh, for listeners, we're going to link to all of Narcy's stuff in the show description, uh, so be sure not to miss that, but we'll review it all at the end of the show as well. Samurai, you're on the line. Where are you calling from, and what is your name, if you uh, would like to share that, <laughs> unless it is actually Samurai. <laughs> you're muted. you got to press the unmute button. Maybe his name is Samurai. Uh, <laughs> okay, you're getting kicked off. Okay, if you call again, I know, I know you've been on for a long time, man. Try calling again. We'll we'll boot you up. Joshua, you're on the line now. Where are you calling from, Joshua? I'm calling from West Virginia. What's up, hey. Josh? Hey, uh, I totally agree with uh, Narcy that he should have had an iPhone book. I think that would have been hilarious. <laughs> uh, <laughs> He touched on a lot of great subjects from Palestine to the Iraq war. I wanted to get his thoughts on the Arab Spring, the successes, the failures, and his thoughts on the future for the Middle East. Great question, Joshua. Oh, my God, man. Uh, <laughs> it's a big take it away. The future of the Middle East. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, look, you know, the Arab Spring is very complicated. I never, you know, I never... There was a moment where we really had a lot of hope and and it was amazing. But like all thing Arabs, that gets crushed uh, in the midst. Um, mm. So it was tough because, you know, even down to the recent revolution in, in Iraq, so many young people mm -hmm. died and it just got swept under the rug. So, you know, it served a certain purpose, but it also just kind of fizzled and... Um, which was very sad to experience. It was like a high and a low. Uh, it didn't change much, you know, in terms of just shifting kind of. And I think it was all attached to what happened in Iraq and Afghanistan and, the, you know, the PNAC and all that stuff. I think all of it was kind of part of that. And had you not, had we not read about that plan, then you wouldn't see those, those lines that kind of connect it all. So, there's always a bit of doubt as to the power of it. As for the future of the Arab world, you know, I think Arab culture is next in terms of what people are going to want to learn more about. You know, for the longest time, it was like, ooh, Dubai, I want to visit Dubai and like go visit Arab culture. And it's like, it's that's a part of it, but there's so much diversity in our region. And I think a lot of that is going to come out through music and art and it's going to become mainstream. Um, I do believe that's happening now and it's going to happen more and more. Uh, as for our countries, man, you never know, you know, for real. Like, I don't know if it's like karmic uh, exchange for what, you know, people did in Babylon or I don't even know what's happening, but I, I can't really call what's going to happen. It's really a roll of the dice. I just pray that youth get an opportunity to be seen by the world and heard by the world. You know, that's really all that matters. Thanks, Narcy. Samurai, giving you another chance. You're back on the line. 
press the little button at the bottom left of your phone that has a little microphone. My God. There you are. You yes. need a... Can you all hear me? Hey. Yes. Where are you calling from? Uh, Louisiana. Sam? Can we call you Sam? Uh, yes, sure. Hey. <laughs> yeah. Um, I had a question uh, both for Nars... Well, for all three of y'all, but um, I-, I think... Uh, I, I joined this uh, this little organization called the DSA um, a little bit while back um, and got involved with some Palestine organizing in it. Um, and I think over the course of the last uh, two, almost three years, have been like uh, just royally disappointed in how little, uh, you know, our, our so-called quote-unquote socialist movement has put on the line for Palestine or just for a broader, like, anti-war movement on the left. Um, and I think our leadership, you know, has at all, at, at, at every means tried to, like, stop any sort of meaningful progress. So I'm curious, like, um, you know, Narsi, Abby, uh, Mike, where y'all see um, the future of, you know, a, a more, like, you know, successful um, place for, um, a true anti-war, um, anti-establishment movement that sort of unites, um, like economic liberties and a just foreign policy, because I, I personally like kind of shopping around for somewhere. Uh, I don't think DSA is it. I'll let you guys lead. Sure. Uh, so thanks for the question. I, feel your pain a lot of times. Uh, I think that I know the DSA international committee does really great stuff. And so, you know, anytime you're in a big organization, especially a big, big tent organization, the, uh, the radicals in the group, uh, are going to feel that they're not getting enough because they, you know, they probably aren't. Um, I will say that as someone who's been in the socialist movement, addition to the anti-war movement for a fairly long time, long time relative to my own life, I guess, since like 2006, uh, it can seem like a demoralizing time, but in that kind of long line of history, it's really not. I mean, the, uh, the, you know, probably you finding out about socialism and joining a socialist organization came with this like massive wave of people suddenly becoming interested in it and having a positive opinion of it. Something that did not uh, exist for the first, uh, you know, 90% of my time as a, as an activist. Um, but then, you know, the opposite is true of the anti-war movement. When I first got politically active, you know, in 2005, 2006, the anti-war movement was massive. It was historic, not just in the U S but everywhere else. And we felt like we were going to like overthrow the government or something. And then now it's like the opposite. I mean, anti-war <clears throat> ideas and values are just, they may be popular in people's minds, but in terms of, um, action it's it's really lacking and i think the the answer to your question is even if you feel like there's not enough happening at a given moment the the times where there are upsurges are something that we can't really predict like no one could have predicted that in the wake of george floyd there would be you know like a a a pre-revolutionary situation in the united states like a a rebellion that touched almost every single person in the country no one could have predicted that just like no one could have predicted the amount of people who would come out uh against bush when the iraq war started and uh, you know we narcy you're talking earlier about how much has changed in regards to palestine when when we saw each other last in 2019 
I don't think we could have predicted what would have gone down in May 2021 Absolutely. when there yeah. was the largest yeah. ever protest in support of Palestine in U.S. history. Yeah. And by like a lot, like not just like the biggest, but like a biggest ever by like a magnitudes of like a hundred. So things change quickly. I mean, that's how the history works. And the work that you do that may seem insignificant as a political organizer, because it's happening during these periods of lulls or inactivity it's really providing a foundation for when those upsurges inevitably do happen and successful movements and revolutions and all that are are really the, the backbone of it are the people that have been preparing and doing the work day to day like narcy you said earlier about how the the reason that there was such uh an upsurge over sheikh jarrah in 2021 is because of the work that had the decolonial work that had been being done for many, many years, mm. which probably seemed demoralizing to do at the time because you just felt you weren't mm. getting anywhere. Nobody cared about it, whatever. Yeah. And then you get to see the fruits of what you've been doing at a time you can't predict, but you know, it's going to happen. And so, uh, Sam, I know that's can, it can be a bummer a lot of times, especially in the United States. I mean, politics is the left is, and, and the struggle is in a, kind of in a state of just being dead and being growing back from the ashes. And so there's going to be those demoralizing times, but every there's so much that you do that may feel insignificant because you're not breaking down the barricades at the white house, but you know, it could very well lead to that sooner than you think. Yeah. I think we're at a time now in history where, you know, like I said, I have these 20 year olds that I interact with all the time, um, you know, on a weekly level and, and, I see how much the internet has polarized uh, opinion and made opinion more important than fact, you know? Um, and I had a moment in one of my classes where a student was like, yeah, but like, you know, colonialism, you know, it, it, it's up to us to decide if colonialism is over or not mentally, you know? And, and I realized that until we come back to some gray area of, conversation and uh, you know allowing ourselves as a generation to open up as opposed to stick to one perspective and think that decolonial work means just thinking a certain way and not acting a certain way that's when things are going to change so i think once the once the shift off the internet becomes less polarized is when we're really going to be able to feel like our work is due because it is at the end of the day chipping away at a monolith and then Eventually, that chipping away ends up being a big block, you know, and you can make a, a significant change. Yeah. Thanks, Narcy. Great response there. We're going to take uh, one or two more calls. Uh, thank you so much, Samurai, for your question. It was an important thank one. You, and I hope that you uh, find what you're looking for because it's out there. And what you're doing now is, is also important. Fargo, we got you on the line. Where are you calling from, Fargo? Uh, I'm, hi, I'm Fargo from Vancouver, BC, in Canada. Um, hi, Abby, Mark, and Narcy. Thanks for doing the show. Um, I had a question. I'm, I'm, uh, I was born in Iran, um, and I'm sure you guys are aware of the um, uh, revolution taking place there at the moment. Um, I wanted to get you guys' take on the role of art in, uh, in, in a revolution and the role of uh, women as the forefront as the pioneers of this type of revolution and their role in future revolutions and globally. Abby? I, I'm going to let you take this one on because I've 
really been inspired by what you've said about art playing a role, especially hip hop in revolution and, and revolutionary discourse. So take it away, Narcy. You know, one of the one of the things when we opened the bookshop in the city that we asked ourselves was like, how can we um, without just posturing and posting things online and showing solidarity, which is important, but how can we actually do something on the ground here um, that would help change hearts? Because I think where the role of art is not to change minds, it's to change hearts. As soon as you change somebody's heart, then you can really get them to think about how they, you know, how they think. So when, when stocking the books, we have a carefully curated list of books at our, at our bookshop. And it was like, how can we intervene with the space in the city and represent for, you know, Iranians, but also for Iranian women. And we stocked only Iranian women's books. You know, we did a whole table in our shop that was only stories by, by women from Iran. And you would see people who are not from that community come in and see the table and quietly interact with this table of books and then leave with one. And it would be an American or a white Canadian or, you know, somebody from the black community in Montreal or, or an, an, an Arab from a different community. And, and sharing the work of those artists is just as important as the work being done. And I think like if we're, if we can be, if we can do anything is to become the megaphone for the sisters on the ground there and really spread their name and their word. And that was what I could do as an individual on the ground in Canada. And I, I realized in that moment how important every piece of art is in the, in the, in the movement, you know, um, and, you know, art connected me to somebody like Abby, who I feel like has done way more work than me in terms of, uh, Palestinian activism and spreading the word and, 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 you know, somebody like Mike who stood up in America and had some really brave moments and some difficult moments. So like, you know, these are all artful people, like in their political quest, they approach it from an artful place. And I think if we start approaching all our activism from a place of art, then it's really going to be, it's going to have a, a stronger reverberation in the world. So that's yeah. all I can say part of the people of Iran, bro beautifully put narcy as always thank you so much for the call fargo um we want to be respectful of your time so we're gonna wrap this up narcy it's been an awesome conversation time is an illusion abby time, time is, an, is illusion. an illusion time actually hasn't passed at all since we started this it's just been standing still man um narcy let's close it up by talking about where people can support you where they can follow your work can people pre-order your next album my album is not online at the moment, okay. but I have a single coming out soon called Meta World Peace, which I sent to you guys. You can, you can play it at the end of this. People can get a taste of it. It's with Bukhar Thum and El Baraim from Palestine, one of the oldest rock groups out of Palestine. We got to sample them and feature them on the song produced by Thanks Joey. You can go to mekteba.online to check out our bookshop or mekteba.bookshop on Instagram um, or Narcy Nars on Instagram or the narcissist on uh twitter i'm all over the place how do you spell the your bookstore name for people to find m-a-k-t-a-b-a not mc like mcdonald's but m-a-k-t-a-b-a mctava and those links are on the dose show description check it out on colin uh follow narcy support his work narcy you're the best we really appreciate you coming on hope to see you again soon man 
Yeah, man, love you guys and best of luck with the second baby and you be safe out there. And I really hope that our babies get to meet each other next. Uh, that would be amazing. Yeah, peace. Thanks so much, much Narcy. And uh, listeners, peace, we're going we're gonna to play you out with his forthcoming song, Meta World Peace. I wonder what a better world means when shit just hit the fan like meta world peace. I wonder what it feel like, free life. Wonder what it's real like, heavy through my feet tight, ready move on a green light. What I choose might be right, so don't talk to me awkwardly. Saddam Hussein philosophies fulfilling a prophecy, investing a property you should properly own. This ain't a movie, dog. Don't bring your pops to me. No. Tell the demons to get off of me. Go. I am known as a post-martyr, globe charter, even with closed borders. Whoa. When I say I ad lib, pay the ad risk, play it, that's it. Nothing greater than risk and risk. I've been in this shit 2002. Look at all the bullshit I go through. So-called beef like beyond me. Hard enough just to be on beat. I'm a the podium, I'm a standalone You should keep your ass at home and keep your mask on like the Mandalorian That's all the preview you're going to get today of this unreleased track by Narcy. Thanks for joining us today. Make sure to join us next week for the last episode of Dosed before Abby and I head on maternity leave for at least a month or so. If you got time, head on to your streaming app, Spotify or iTunes. Give the show a rating. Rating always helps us uh, get heard more. And of course, check out all the stuff we're busy doing at Empire Files. 